Good to see everybody. I didn't know I was going to be teaching the encouragers class today. Um, the other class invited me because they said, listen, we're all going to be out this weekend, so you can't do that much damage. Come on. Um, so, surprise. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Second Peter. Uh, I'm going to be here for four weeks, and um, today I just wanted to introduce, I want to look, we're going to be looking into 2 Peter, and in the four weeks, I'm really going to focus on the first 11 verses, but today I wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, if you know uh, 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter is, almost, is only three chapters long, and one of the things that, that I find um, discouraging and, and um, not helpful at times is that so, so many times when we're teaching or hearing preaching, we're only getting bits and pieces of things, right? Bits and pieces, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. And so what I'd like to do is, today I'm going to read most of Second Peter out loud to you. Uh, there, there's a section where Peter gets a little bit repetitive, and I may just kind of go over some of that, but, but I really want you to hear everything he says in this letter, because as you probably know, this is the last letter that Peter's going to write. Uh, there are only two letters by Peter in the New Testament, First and Second Peter. Uh, he is probably behind uh, the Gospel of Mark. There's a tradition that connects Peter with Mark, uh, doing some traveling together, and a lot of people think that Peter was very influential in the writing of the Gospel. Uh, of course, you have him all throughout the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He, is the, um, he really is the key disciple, right? And all the lists of the 12, the original followers of Jesus, Peter always shows up first. And we know the history behind all that. I'll, I'll touch on some of that as we go. But I, I wanted to read this letter out loud. Uh, first and second Peter, they've got some weird things in them. Y'all know what I'm talking about? If you've ever read 1st, 2nd Peter, probably, let me just say, some of you, this may be the first time you're hearing that Peter has some letters. Everybody avoids these things. <laughs> Nobody wants to preach on them because Peter's got some thorn thickets in there that you get tangled up in and, and um, you know, it's hard to get free. But 2nd but, uh, Peter is his last letter. And as you're going to hear, he realizes he's right at the point of going to be with the Lord at the point of his death. He knows it's right at hand. So this is the last thing Peter is going to write to these churches to remind them of the things he's been teaching them. So how important do you think the things are that are in this letter? This is, this is for real, right? This is, I'm at the end of my course. I'm about to leave. I'm leaving all of y'all behind. We got a big old mess on our hands. So if you're going to remember anything, this is what I want you to remember. And you're going to hear him say this throughout the letter. So let, let's read this together. 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, begins with his introduction of himself. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now may, be, may grace and peace be multiplied multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, Now His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has also granted to us His precious and very great promises, 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature once you've escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or excellence. I'd rather translate it. Supplement, add to your faith, excellence, and excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with unselfish love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and choosing. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take note of that. That's really interesting. If you do these things, an entrance into the kingdom will be provided. So just hang on to that idea as we go through this. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these, of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if He did not spare the ancient world, but instead preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. These who are bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these teachers, verse 12, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. When have you ever heard anybody preach like that in the church? Talking about false teachers. They are irrational animals. Creatures, right? he's not, hmm. Peter wouldn't get along too well in our times, would he? <laughs> Only good to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they were ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, lived, uh, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's a great statement. Verse 24, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. <laughs> well, that's rough. That second chapter is rough on the false teachers. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. The really powerful ending. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire." 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, And so don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them, they will all be exposed. Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly dwells. Verse 14, the conclusion. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. For there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. Right? Amen to that. <laughs> Which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18, Instead, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, or of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and also to the day of eternity. Amen. Boy, that's how you write a last letter. <laughs> Quick and to the point, right? You need to know Jesus, avoid false teachers, and live in a way looking forward to His return. That's it, right? That's the basis of it. Now, Look at look in those last verses. I want to show you kind of what I'm going to focus on over the next four weeks. Like I said, we're only going to focus on the first uh, part of the first chapter of this this book. But it comes to a conclusion there in verse 14, where uh, Peter says, "Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, since you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by Him, be found by the Lord Jesus, without spot or blemish, and at peace." Right? That's what we want to do. As we're waiting for the Lord to return, as we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, we want to be found by Jesus at His return without spot or blemish and at peace. Right? That's the goal. And so then the question should become, well, how do we do that? Right? What do you do to do that? And that, that's what He answers right in the first chapter of this book. Uh, in the first 11 verses, he tells us how to do that very thing. And that's what I want to focus on. Because one of the things that I have, man, ever since, I mean, I don't know if y'all feel like this, but I feel like the last three or four years, the world has turned upside down. Things have gone crazy. You know, I've, I've got a good friend who uh, works teaching young guys that are interested in, in ministry and preaching and whatnot. And he said, you know, um, I was talking to him recently, he said, I, I, one of the first lessons that, that I will tell these young guys is just to get them ready. He said, uh, you know, to get your mind, if you're just 
talking to a, a general audience and you don't know who's out there, there's a couple of things you need to assume. And it's this. People are stupid and they're lazy. You, you need to start there, right? He said, now in the, in, in the last three years, I've had another third thing. People are stupid and they're lazy and they're also crazy. So if you start with that in your mind and preach to that audience, you're going to hit the vast majority of the people if you don't know who they are, right? And now, now y'all know, that sounds funny, but think about it for a minute, right? Uh, I, I, I don't know if y'all... If this is just me, or, or if y'all are picking up on this too, I, I've just culturally, y'all know our culture has been in severe decline since the late 70s. Uh, there is a study that was done recently where they actually came to the conclusion that 1978 was the high point of American culture. And from 1978 until 2023, we've just been on a, on a, on a you know, decline, sliding down where uh, the things that they were looking at were things like, you know, do people feel joyous and satisfied, right? Do we feel like things are going well? One of the big factors was, do we think things are going to turn out well in the United States? And since 1978, the answer has been, no, I don't think it is, right? There's, there's been this overwhelming sense of dread that things are falling apart. And to me, at the foundation of that complete, you know, unraveling of things is is simply the moral character of people right and and that's exactly what peter talks about if you, if you look uh now i'm jumping in the middle of this peter does a lot to talk about in the beginning here about the things that god has bestowed on us and we're going to get to that here in just a second but if you notice in verse five uh he, he gives us seven virtues seven qualities to add to our faith that's been given to us. And those are, if you look at the list there, five, they are excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and unselfish love. Right? Seven things to add to your faith. Excellence. Hmm. That's an interesting word. Why is that first on the list? And, and, and notice the way he says it. For this very reason... Add to your faith excellence, and to your excellence, knowledge, and to your knowledge, self-control, and to your self-control, steadfastness. Do you see the pattern there? It's almost like he's building a pyramid or something, or building a stair step. And the, and, the, and the foundation is excellence. That, that's really interesting, right? Uh, and uh, if you think about that, if, if, if your goal is not to pursue excellence, then all these other things aren't really going to fall into place. If your goal is not to do things at the same level and the same standard that the Lord God would do them, then it doesn't matter what else you're going to try to do. Right? It needs to start there. Now let me ask you this. In our culture, whenever you get your car fixed, whenever you get somebody to come in and paint your house, is your first thought, oh, they're going to do excellent work. Or do you think, well, I need to start planning for how they're going to mess the whole thing up and then what the next steps are going to be. And I see Lori shaking her head, and I know why. Right? We, uh, we, we've just been inundated with stories recently of having people do work, and then they have to call somebody else in to do the repairs that nobody else did, and then sometimes even a third step has to be taken to get things fixed. Why? Because people don't pursue excellence anymore. It's just, we're just, we just throw it out and let's go at it, right? So you can see... 
how these things that Peter are going to talk about, notice they're all things that we do. Excellence, right? Acquiring knowledge. Self-control. Self-control. Right? And then right after self-control, steadfastness. <laughs> it's easy to be self-controlled for 30 minutes. It's hard to be self-controlled all week long. Right? So you can see the order there. And that, that's what I'm going to focus the study on as we go through to talk about these seven qualities. Uh, one of my mentors in the faith, Dr. Roger Clapp, I had him at Crichton College. He was at uh, Mid-South Bible College for a number of years. A lot of y'all probably know Dr. Clapp. Uh, but Dr. Clapp would, would come up to me almost every time and I, and I, that I would see him. And he'd say, Stacy, what are the seven qualities of a godly man? And I had to be on the spot. It is excellence. It is knowledge. It is self-control. It is steadfastness. Right? It is godliness. It's brotherly affection and it's unselfish love. He's like, that's good. Now, are you doing them? <laughs> man, I tell you what, they made a profound impact on me. And as I thought about teaching for the four weeks, this passage kept on coming to mind. So I thought, okay, Lord, I guess that's what we're going to do. Now, let's, let's go back. And I, w- I want you to look. In this first chapter, Peter does two things. The first four verses here, he, talk, he, talk, he focuses mainly on the things that have been given to us that allow us to pursue those seven things that he's talking about there, those seven qualities. So the first part of it, he talks about, uh, if I could sum it up this way, he talks about the grace and provision of the Lord God. And notice how he starts. Verse 1, Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we could spend, I mean, I could spend 40 minutes just talking about that. Um, notice he, he calls himself Simeon here. Um, that's the longer form of his name. Uh, Simon Peter, Simeon Peter is the same thing. Uh, but, but he also goes on to say uh, a servant in my translation here, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word servant is really slave. And I find it really interesting that both Peter and Paul and all the apostles as they write their letters, they normally start with that. Peter, a slave and apostle. He doesn't put apostle first. He puts slave first, right? A bond slave. This is somebody, and, and, and by the way, notice, he even, he even touches on the idea behind this in chapter 2. I'm going to tell you what, 2 Peter is so un-American uh, in so many different ways, so un-Western. Chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about these false prophets who have arisen among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And he says right at the end of chapter 2 there, even denying the master who bought them. See that? The master who bought them. And we, we know from Paul's teachings, even from... First Peter, that, that one, of the, um, one of the results of Jesus' sacrifice is his blood becomes the purchase redemption price for us. In his sacrifice, Jesus buys us for himself, just as you would re- buy a slave in the slave market. And that becomes this powerful image behind it. Uh, Jesus has given his blood to purchase us for himself. Now, again, it's not a very popular idea anymore. Right? Because if that's true, right, then that makes him master. Not you. Not me. I don't get the final say so, right? This is something that's left out of the modern church altogether. Right? Jesus as master and Lord. <laughs> right? What does that mean? That means 
exactly what he says in Matthew 28. All authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To me. And he didn't put anybody after that. And, right, just to him. So he is master and Lord over all things. Right? And so as, as Peter identifies himself here, first thing he says, I'm a slave of Jesus. And he's proud of it. Right? I mean, who else would you want to belong to other than him? Right? And he's going to get into that here. And, and, and then he says this. This is really, this is why people don't teach Second Peter. To those who, and my, my translation I, I think has a, not, not a, a, the best way to handle this here. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, and the word that I don't like there is obtained. Right? Because when you, when you attain, ob- obtain something, that sounds like you're the one that's going out and, and doing it, right? obtaining it. Right? Uh, it. I think it's better to uh, translate this word as received or um, as the net translation has it, um, been granted to those who have received a faith of equal standing or who have been granted a faith of equal standing. The most literal translation is actually this, to those who, who have been allotted a faith of equal standing. Because that word there that's obtained, that's translated as obtained, in the, re- <laughs> in the rest of the New Testament, I don't know if you know this or not, th- that word is used about things that are obtained by the casting of lots. This is the same word that's used when Zechariah is chosen by lot to go into the temple in the first chapter of Luke at the time of the prayers to offer incense. Y'all remember that? And um, when that happened, that's such a great blessing that you could only do it one time as a priest. And the lot just happens to fall to Zechariah and he goes into the temple. And y'all remember what happens? Who is in the temple with him? Gabriel, right? Wow. Hmm. It doesn't seem like that's happening by chance, right? Um, the other, the other place it shows up is when the guards cast lots for Jesus' tunic at the crucifixion. You remember that? Jesus had this nice tunic. It was one piece, and the soldiers didn't want to tear it up, so they cast lots to see who would get it. Same thing. Um, really, really interesting reference, Acts one seventeen. It's used in reference to Ju- Judas, whom Jesus picked to be one of the twelve, and he was allotted part of the ministry of the apostles. It's the same word. And the thing that I want you to see here is that what Peter is saying is, is that the faith that we have is something that has been granted to us. It's been given to us. You follow me? Now again, this is very un-American, especially in the South here. We think our faith is something that we've done. There's no, there's just ample evidence in Scripture that that's not the case at all. Turn with, let me show you, let me show you another thing happening here. Look over to Philippians with me right quick. Turn to Philippians, um, Ephesians, Philippians. And if you look in, if you look in uh, uh, Philippians, let's see, let me... Da, 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 da. And my, my mind just went completely blank. I can't even remember what I turned over uh, shoot. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, it's the place where he says, it has been granted to you 
not only to believe in Christ, but to also suffer for him. Uh, let's see, where, where is that? Uh, yeah, uh, Philippians uh, 1.29. Philippians 1.29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now here that I still have. Right? So faith here is something that's granted. right? And this is very important for Peter because he realizes everything that he's about to talk about, we have to start with the foundation of all the ways that God has blessed us, all the ways that God has laid a foundation for us to be able to do these things that he's calling us to do. And the first thing to realize is, number one, you don't belong to yourself. Jesus has purchased you for himself. And if that's true, then you also have to realize that your faith is something that's been granted to you. Now, let me ask you this. Think about Peter's experience with the Lord Jesus. Why would this be especially poignant for Peter to make this point about the faith that's been granted to him? Why, why, why Peter of all people? Of all the apostles, why is he starting out with this, do you think? Think about Peter's life. Right? Um, like I said, he's number one on the list of all the apostles. Right? First time Jesus meets Peter, he says, ah, you're Simon, but you are going to be, what? The rock. Peter, that's where he gets his name, Petros. Uh, Cephas in Aramaic. You're Simon now, but you're going to be the rock. Right? And, and we see Peter all throughout the Gospels, right? He's always the spokesperson for the twelve. He's always opening his mouth and he's always saying the wrong thing. <laughs> right? And in fact, in one passage, <laughs> in one passage where, where Jesus finally solidifies the name Peter, it's at the time when the crowds are turning against Jesus. And he's trying to figure out, are these disciples getting it or not? And he asked them, who do people say that I am? Y'all, you remember this? Who do, who do people say that I am? And they gave one answer and then another. Well, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah finally showing up after all these years to fulfill the promises, right? And then Peter sp- speaks up, and what does he say? Well, Lord, we believe that you are the Messiah. And then he adds this, the Son of the living God. And immediately, you remember what Jesus says next? This is so important. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. That was given to you, right? So, so Father God has blessed Peter with this insight of who Jesus actually is. And let me tell you the the fascinating thing about Peter is is that Peter really doesn't believe that until the second or third chapter in Acts. It takes Jesus' resurrection, the time with Jesus afterwards that he talks to Peter until it it finally takes fruition. We're going to come back in in a couple of weeks and talk about some of these episodes in Acts that give us a background to what is going on with the things Peter is saying here. But here at the beginning, he, he lays this foundation simply by saying, right, to those who have, have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now let me take a minute and talk about the context of this, having said that. 
It's clear that First and Second Peter are related. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And so scholars agree that First Peter is the first letter. And if you look in the beginning of that letter, Peter is writing to uh, people who are, in, who are in northern Asia Minor. Uh, and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But if you remember, Asia Minor is kind of the hotbed of the early missionary movement when Paul uh, begins his first missionary journey. Uh, he and Barnabas leave from Antioch and they go into Asia Minor and they spread the gospel. And, and we know from some references um, in Acts and some, some other traditional things that Peter apparently spent some time in Asia Minor. Uh, Paul references him probably being in Corinth for a short time along with his wife. Uh, Peter's wife uh, traveled around with him when he was out doing his work. And we also know from the end of 1 Peter that Peter winds up in Rome and he writes uh, these letters probably from Rome back to the people that he has ministered to in Asia Minor. He calls them exiles. And, and here, here in the second, second letter, it seems to me he's focusing more on the, the, the church in general. The, the first letter, he seems to be talking specifically to the Jewish believers that are in the churches, right? The early church was Jew and Gentile come together as one body in Christ. And, and, and Peter really focuses on the Jewish element in that first letter, reminding him of who they are and who they've become in Christ. The second letter, to me, it seems like it's more general. And, and maybe even focusing more on the Gentile side of it. Because where he says here, you have received, you have been allotted a faith on equal standing with ours, he is saying, listen, my faith is the same as your faith. Just because I'm an apostle, that doesn't mean there's anything different. Jesus has called us both together. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. In fact, if you remember, Peter is the one who opens the door of the gospel to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. You remember this? Uh, Cornelius um, is a devout man. And Peter has this vision of a great net coming out of heaven with all kind of unclean fish and fowl and everything else. In it. And the Lord says to Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? No! <laughs> still, still putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, by the way, I, I love that immediately after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus tells them, now listen to me, boys. We're going up to Jerusalem in a, in a few days. And when I get there, they're going to betray me. They're going to beat me. They're going to torture me. And they're ultimately going to kill me. And what does Peter say? Not so. Uh-uh, Lord. We ain't going to let that happen. And what does the Lord say to, to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. <coughs> so the, Peter the Rock, <laughs> that is named the Rock, and the first thing he does is become the rock of stumbling and offense, right? That wants to keep Jesus from doing what he needs to do, right? So it's going to take him time to develop his understanding of what the Lord is doing, right? And so, so Peter has this vision, and then he realizes that this vision of this un, these unclean animals is really about the Gentiles. And he goes to Cornelius' house, and as, as he, he enters the house of these Gentiles, and, and he does it begrudgingly, right? I'm going to talk about that maybe next week. He goes in and he doesn't really want to be there. <clears throat> and all the Gentiles start worshiping him. Oh, this is Peter. We've heard about him. You remember what Peter says? Get up. I'm just a man like all y'all. Right? And, and then by the end of it, he says, ah, now I realize. 
God doesn't show favoritism to anybody, Jew or Gentile. Right? He, he's called us to be one body. And then later, he stands up at the uh, Jerusalem Council when they're trying to figure out about, man, what are we going to do? They're, right, this is the early controversy in the early church. You've got these unclean Gentiles who've just been barbarians and right, all just terrible people. And now they're coming together with the Jews, the Israelites who've been under the law of Moses all these years. And they get the church together and they're having the picnic. And next thing you know, oh, Lord, have mercy. These Gentiles are wanting to bring pulled pork and catfish. <laughs> That's off the kosher law, right? The Jews are like, we can't eat that. Pickle pig's feet. Are you kidding me? Right? What in the world are we going to do? How are we going to get this together? How is this ever going to work? And the Jerusalem council gets together and says, okay, we're going to figure out, are we going to make the Gentiles keep the law? Do they have to keep the statutes of Moses too. And Peter gets up and says, hang y'all, they've been debating for hours. And Peter gets up and says, y'all wait a minute. Y'all know right, that, that God has poured out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles just the same as He did us. There's no, he, he shows no favoritism. He's included them in just the same as us. So let me ask you this. Why would you want to put them under a yoke that neither we nor our forefathers have ever been able to keep? We hadn't kept the law, so why are you going to put it on them? Right? And so, so Peter stands up and, and uh, makes this bold claim, right? And then <laughs> uh, that's in the background of a controversy. He gets into Paul that we'll talk about a little bit later because Peter has to go through a, a growing spurt to understand that. There's a time when Peter goes to Antioch, and when he goes to Antioch, when he's hanging out with the Jewish people, he pretends, oh, I don't eat, I don't eat that pulled pork. I don't, I don't do that, right? But then but when, but then when the uh, Gentiles show up, right, he'll hang out with them and eat pulled pork and do whatever. And Paul gets in his face and says, Peter, you are a hypocrite. You know better than that, right? So here, by the time we get to 2 Peter, he is at the end of his life, and, and it's so incredible to see the way he has grown, very last things that he says in this letter, how he has grown in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Peter that writes Second Peter is not the Peter that's in Matthew. Not the Peter, Peter that's in Mark. Not the Peter that's in John. Not even the Peter that's in the first part of the book of Acts. When we get to this Peter, he is in some ways almost unrecognizable from that man that we saw earlier on who's always putting his foot in his mouth, saying the wrong things, saying no to the Lord, being disobedient, being stubborn, wanting to have his own way, right? Instead, we get this incredible letter where he tells us exactly what we need to do if we want to have a grand and glorious entrance into the kingdom of Jesus provided for us. And this is what he says, it ain't rocket science. Just seven things. Just seven things. If you will practice these seven things, building on the faith that's already been granted to you by Father God, add these things to your faith and you will never fall. Right? And these things aren't difficult. Let me, let me say this. They're not difficult to understand. They're difficult to apply. And I would even argue that doing them all of them together are nearly impossible without the empowerment of the Spirit of the Lord God. And that's what we're going to see as we move on through here. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Next week, I'm going to pick, pick up and we'll look at a couple of other things 
uh, that, that introduce these seven qualities. And then in the weeks that, that come after that, we're, we're going to focus on these seven qualities that Peter gives us here. Uh, but I'll stop right there for time. Now, uh, pr- uh, prayer, we're going to turn it over for prayer. Is somebody praying or am I praying? Or... I'm do- okay, well, let, let me pray for us and I'll close this out. Father, we, we thank you for all the ways you bless us and provide for us. We thank you for the time we have here together. Thank you for all the time I have with all of these uh, saints and fine people who have devoted their lives to following you and who have uh, given themselves over to you. And, and Lord, I, I pray that in our time together, uh, we can encourage one another and help one another and build one another up because we do want to be people who in everything we say and do uh, are pleasing to you and we want to pursue these things that make us fruitful and effective for the sake of the kingdom and to be pleasing to the Lord uh, our Lord Jesus who is our master and our savior who has purchased us at the price of his own blood who has cleansed us by that same blood to give us forgiveness and um, also to allow us to be able to trust and to turn from our old ways and captivated, enslaved by the ways of the world to find the freedom and the life that we can only find in Him. So we thank you for all these things and pray that in all that we do, you'll help us and give us all that we need as we already have, that you'll make us aware of all these things that you've blessed us with through your great and powerful promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. And we give you all thanks for these things and all praise for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.